Welcome to episode two of Jointly Venturing. My name is Michael. I'm joined by Scott and Sid. And today we're going to discuss uh, whether or not mobile phones can provide a platform for global voting for a global parliament. And uh, I'd like to ask Scott firstly, do you trust global, global parliament to an algorithm, Scott? Mighty fine question. Um... Before we get to that more technical question, let's just think about the notion, first and foremost, of the idea that everyone everywhere on planet Earth should have the right to vote on matters of global importance. Um, what do we think about that? Do, should votes be left exclusively to citizens of a particular country if the actions of that country can have global implications? Um, is that fair? Is that just? Does that build the best future that we would like to have for ourselves and our children and, and all future generations? That's something to think about in the first instance. Secondly, what is voting ultimately? And where does voting as an idea come from? Where does the question of legitimacy of parliaments and parliamentarians and our representatives who are meant to represent our interests because of our votes where does that come from? Um, on what system is that model predicated? And how does the whole concept of popular will um, weave into the framework of the evolutionary development of all of us in a political context? So we need to contemplate those and countless other matters before we can really get into whether we trust algorithms and, and AI and things of that nature when it comes to voting. But I, I, I would love listeners to just simply sit back for a moment and think if there was an option for you once a year, maybe twice a year, through your iPhone or some other future form of technology we don't know about yet, what if you got a text message um, every year on the 1st of May and also on the 1st of November, twice a year? from some yet-to-be-defined international, supranational, global federal body that asked a question, a simple, straightforward, one-sentence question that you could respond to. Um, that body, which we'll talk about in other podcasts or potential bodies, would then potentially have the votes of billions of people to look at. And obviously first question you need to think about is if you got that request on your phone would you respond that's interesting to think about secondly if you did respond what would actually be done with your vote number one obviously it would have to be kept private you can't have public voting um, that would have to be preserved um, and ultimately the big question is of course what would be done with your vote in terms of its tabulation and what would then be the consequences of your vote if you yours and others we're in a majority camp at the end of the voting process. So it's, let's just put it like this. We're, we're now in, in October 2018. There's a horrible war raging in the country of Yemen, in the Middle East. Um, people are dying unnecessarily of starvation. Imagine in a week's time you got a text message on your phone that said, should more 
resources be put towards solving starvation and hunger in Yemen, yes or no? Would you vote? Do you know how you would vote? And then we can start thinking about how that would actually be implemented if, let's say, 80, 90 percent of the world population voted. My personal opinion right now, generally speaking on this question, is in the initial years of global voting, it would have to be purely advisory in nature. It would not have the status of a formal vote, like, like a parliamentary vote in a parliamentary democracy. It would not have the formal status of a referendum vote in countries that have referendum, uh, like Switzerland and others. But it would play an advisory role. It would essentially be a global opinion poll about what do people think about one or two or three really pressing global issues. And if that works successfully and if it was proved, proven to be fair, if all the glitches were removed, if corruption and fraud and manipulation were prevented, um, then we can start thinking about how to go further on it. A global electoral commission could run that very first opinion poll. Sid, uh, have you got any thoughts on how IT developments could um, express, allow individuals to express their sovereignty in a global, uh, a, a global democracy? Well, so there's a couple of organisations I've heard about that are operating, uh, that start in Melbourne, actually. Wow. One of them is called My Vote. Oh, um, really? Yeah. My Tell Vote. us about that. And uh, another one uh, that's kind of a spin-off... Um, out of my vote is called Horizon State, and uh, in fact, they we should probably get them on as guests in the in a future podcast. Yeah. Uh, so my vote is trying to fundamentally redesign the way we have our voices heard on a collective level, and it's trying to give people more of a say on issues on a more regular basis. So rather than having your say in a vote that happens once every four years for an elected representative, it's trying to give you a say on issues as they happen that matter to you. Uh, and done through your phone. And so to run that system, what they built was a distributed ledger, so a blockchain-based platform uh, that would power the voting process. And out of that came an associated company called Horizon State that provides this blockchain technology. Uh, and Horizon State, really interesting company, believes that, uh, so when the postal vote happened in Australia on marriage equality, that cost in excess of $120 million. And Horizon State believes it could have run that same vote for $2 million and in a much shorter time. So drastically cheaper and more efficient and effective than our current methods. So there are these new technological approaches that are being taken that could allow us to vote more effectively and efficiently and at scale. So it remains to be seen, but it would be really interesting to find out if they could be implemented more widely and even rolled out on a global level. So I'm so interested in, in blockchain being used to accumulate the individual decisions of humans in relation to issues that affect them. Mm. But I'm not sure what issues it raises around uh, privacy and sort of safety and whether it can be corrupted and whether it can be abused. I, I don't know the underlying... Yeah, one, of the, you know, one of the strengths of blockchain, of course, is that it keeps a permanent record of every single transaction that takes place using that technology, right? So one of the premises of the democratic system, of course, is that your vote is always secret and that no political entity should ever be able to access your voting record unless you freely provide that to them for obvious reasons, the most extreme of which, of course, is that if your political opponents achieve power and they choose to purge those elements of society that oppose them, then the first place they can look is an insecure 
voting system, which shows every single voter who voted against them, who they then subsequently target. And that has happened in history, and it will certainly happen again if the wrong people get into power. So that would be one of my concerns about... Um, or if once in power, the right people became the wrong people. Right. You know, I can, I can give plenty examples of, uh, you know, of um, political opposition movements that I myself have personally worked with who became very different people once they took political power in, and behaved in ways that you would have never, ever thought possible when they were lowly little revolutionaries trying to overthrow whatever dictatorship it was that they were fighting against. So, you know, all of those variables need to be thought about in the context of a global voting system. But my, you know, my interest in this whole idea, this whole concept of global voting is of course it would be part of a broader fundamental global change of the way we choose to govern ourselves because if we do have a global political system you need to have a global voting system that, that accompanies it so that any sort of representation that you have at the global level it is is representative of what people actually have decided that they want it raises other questions such as should voting be mandatory like it is in Australia? A system which I actually like in many ways, um, having come from a country where it isn't mandatory, where it's not even guaranteed that you're registered to vote, you have to actively register yourself to vote. Um, I actually see many of the strengths of the mandatory system. At the same time, you know, do we truly want to compel every single person over the age of 16 in some countries or 18 in most countries um, to issue an opinion about certain matters and you know that may also not necessarily bring the most evolved response or the most e evolved um, you know political decision making so all of those issues need to be um, considered um, but I think we need to just start the a global discussion about this is it technologically feasible who would make the decisions what would people vote on would people even be interested but it's just, isn't it a sovereignty question if you leave the selection of the global parliament up to nation states who then send representatives aren't we really just repeating the mistakes of the past in so far as you know the you know the league of nations and the un have is that is the un the right body to fund um a global electrical electoral commission when in fact the UN represents the very nation states that such a global parliament would replace I mean I am a personal personally I am an extremely strong supporter of the United Nations um, and always have been I, I recognize it's many 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 flaws uh, and many shortcomings and I always hope that it can do better than it actually does do but in the last 72 years since it's 73 years that it's been in in place it has done extraordinary things with a very small budget with a very small number of, of staff um, as a separate institution from the states that comprise it okay yep about, right? yep yep but let's remember that prior to the league of nations which you just mentioned um you know the the, the global way by which states um, chose to organize themselves by and large is reflected in what was called the the concert of Europe you know for about a hundred years that was like the precursor to what became the League of Nations 
which of course evolved out of um, you know the the disaster of World War One. Yep. The very unnecessary World War One, um, which just took place almost by accident uh, in in effect, but killed millions of people. Of course, out of that, thanks to surprisingly an American president, Woodrow Wilson, and a number of his allies, they decided to put together this League of Nations. You know, for the first time, really bringing together um, sovereign nation states under the umbrella of this organization called the League of Nations, based in Geneva, initially in Paris, then Geneva, um, to sort out essentially sovereign affairs, but within the mantle of internationalism, you know? And that move from, from hardcore sovereignty, which really has guided things since, you know, the treaties of Westphalia in 1648, um, until the League of Nations, that that quantum leap was was something we should never forget. How staggeringly radical that was um, at the time. Right? Uh, but, for, but from the perspective today, we have Facebook across the planet. I mean, is Facebook going to and or Facebook or or its next iteration uh, or its competitor we haven't heard of yet? Is that going to uh, be the default? Global Electoral Commission? Is it going to be a consumer, commercial-led future? Or is it something that we can protect from that? Do we need to protect it from that? Because perhaps that's how it's unfolding. I mean, if algorithms are pushing particular agendas, uh, then... You know, maybe there should be some regulation of that. Is that. Can that come from the UN? I mean, you have to go back to the founding days of the UN and the, and the, and the, the 1944 meetings that led to the, the founding meeting of the United Nations in 1945, you know, on the, in the ashes of, of World War II. You know, when you look at it in those contexts, the, the improvements that were made over the flaws that were inherent in the League of Nations are massive and should be something that people never forget about because it was a quantum leap again. Um, over and above the League. But the United Nations today is really ultimately a body comprised of nation states, each of which has their own national interests. Remember at the beginning... And of some, UN... of whom, some of whom actually, um, Scott, refused to be bound by the majority or even the judiciary at that level. Of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, the United States first and foremost, you know, which has... Um, done everything possible to undermine the International Criminal Court, has pulled out of, you know, the Paris Climate Agreement, and the list goes on and on and on, has, has cancelled the nuclear agreement with Iran, and the list goes on and on. And I, I, I mean, we could dedicate 20 other podcasts to that topic alone. Indeed. Um, and the 1983, you know, famous decision to no longer recognize the compulsory jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice turned the entire system, which they themselves influenced more than any other country, on its head. Um, and essentially, uh, you know, said to the world, we no longer abide by a rules-based system um, that is subject to the rules, universally agreed, of, of international law. So, but just back for a moment to this yep. question of the UN. So the UN is comprised of nation states. When the UN was founded, it was founded by 58 nation states. Okay. Today, there's 193 members of the UN, maybe 195. Fundamentally different look to the General Assembly today than in the first sitting in 1945. Okay. Countless new countries have been created 
countless countries no longer exist that existed then. There is nothing inherent about the existence of a sovereign nation-state. Sovereignty comes, sovereignty goes. Nation-states come, nation-states go. There's nothing permanent about them. All of them are essentially legal fictions made up in the minds of humans who have decided to draw a boundary on a particular piece of territory investing in that territory the power to have jurisdiction and control over the people that are living there and the making of laws and the enforcement of laws etc and most importantly from the perspective of let's say world citizenship etc sovereign right over the natural resources of that territory so it's very difficult for somebody from brazil to tell the people of Australia that you should no longer dig uranium out of the ground and it's very difficult for an Australian to tell a Brazilian to no longer cut the Amazon down and the list goes on. So I think that's one of the fundamental flaws of the of the global order that that we have created. There's yeah, but Scott, but it. Scott, it's not going to be a Brazilian human cutting down the Amazon. It's not going to be a Brazilian an Australian human digging coal. I mean, come on, these are corporates that uh, are going to be, they're going to be based in tax havens. They're going to have listings on various stock exchanges. They're going to have a, uh, they're going to have to operate within the regulatory system of the territory and the sovereign territory, and they are going to rent seek as we know they do. So um, is there any way that humans can wrest control of a sovereignty for the planet. I mean, to really transcend nation states, include them by all means. Little, little. I mean, there's little choice, is there? Sure. But can we transcend the UN? Sid, um, it looks like you're really understanding what Scott's saying. When, um, but do you have any questions for him about about some aspects of this or something uh, you want to raise? Yeah. I, so, in a new global organization a new international organization that is post-nation state, would that have to deny the existence of nation states or could nation states be subsumed within a greater superstructure in the same way that a nation state has states within it? Great question. And, you know, here at Oneness World and Jointly Venturing, we don't want to be prescriptive. We're not telling anybody, you know, what has to occur. We are about the exchange of ideas and we're about trying to come up with innovative ideas about how to improve the global uh, political organization of our planet. Um, so, you know, bearing that in mind, let's remember that prior to 1948 and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights being promulgated by the UN, there weren't even really internationally recognized individual human rights. I mean, imagine that. It's only 70 years ago. Um, we take it for granted now that there's these things called human rights and that we can enforce them against the state and so on and so forth. But for all the previous 400, 500 generations, there were no such thing as, as human rights and the power of the individual vis-a-vis -vis the state. So that's a tremendous leap forward, you know. But we, we like to think in terms of what's then the next leap forward, you know, because we're not going to just stop here at a, at a world of 195 nation states, you know. It's going to continue to evolve. We're always going to continue to move and 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 change and you know change is the only thing that's permanent right in the planet so what form will that take politically is you know one of the major issues that we'll we'll discuss here right so we've gone from this pre-nation state phase to a nation state 
phase to a nation state within a global supranational organization phase. So what then is the next phase? Remembering that most states that are in existence today were not in existence at the time of the UN, that people have fought and died for the freedom to be able to have a nation state and their own flag and their own currency and everything else. We can never, ever forget that. Um, so this, this evolution that we're talking about can never be imposed. It has to come from within. And that's why, despite its problems, and despite its imperfections, really trying to understand the nature of the European Union, for instance, is so indispensable for imagining a, a, a more evolved political future for the world. The European Union was built on the ash heaps of countless wars throughout countless centuries by Europeans slaughtering each other. They finally reached the point where they said, this is really not the best way to keep doing things, guys. Let's change this. So let's let's bind ourselves together politically and economically to such a degree that it would be against our own interests to have war ever again in the future. And look at how well it has actually worked. Brexit aside, the first thing that a country does in Europe when it fights a war for independence or has some sort of national liberation movement or overthrows, let's say, a formerly, former communist regime, the first call they make, can we join the European Union, please? <laughs> Brussels, let us in. You've got to let us in. We have our independence now. Let us in. You know, and that's what they want to do. The first thing they do, therefore, they are willing to cede a portion of their sovereignty to Brussels in order to be part of a bigger group. That's not a fiction. That's a fact. That's something that so many states have done. And I imagine that if conditions were such that that was something possible for every state to do at a global level, that a growing number of states would do that. There's nothing exceptional now in Europe about having essentially two nationalities. You are born a Dutch citizen if you're born in Holland, but you're also born a European citizen. Automatically, you have the legal status of a European citizen and you have European rights as distinct from Dutch constitutional rights. And that's accepted as a non-issue it's so so much of a given so what if you were born an african as well as a botswanan what if you were born a brazilian and a latin american you a know? new zealander a new and zealander an australian and australian you know <laughs> what if and so start with that and then what what if you go you're the dutch citizen you're a european citizen and guess what your kids are also a global citizen you start with that I predict that if you had a system like that in place over one or two, maybe even less, because things change so quickly now, we didn't even have iPhones 10 years ago. Huh. Um, just constantly remember that. We did not have iPhones 10 years ago, and look at how prevalent they are today. Um, I predict within perhaps one generation to two, maximum, it will be completely standard practice, completely accepted, as much as it is that we need food to eat that you're born a global citizen, but you're also a citizen of your region, and you're also a citizen of your nation state. We're not asking anybody in the world to throw away their nationality, to throw away their culture, to throw away their language, to throw away anything that they hold dear. What we're asking for is to ponder what might actually be better. I mean, there's seven and a half billion of us on this one little sphere spinning around in space how do we make this planet as good as we possibly can? We have done a lot to make it better. But wouldn't we all enjoy it a lot more if we recognized that all of us were essentially the same, not just in terms of being human beings, but that we all had the same nationality and that we all actually had to look after 
each other and that we all cared enough about each other to want to be part of this human family. A globality. A globality instead of a singularity, right? <laughs> so, I mean, that's how I kind of see it. So you don't have to trash what you are now in any respect, you know? But you can see that by gra grabbing on to that idea of global citizenship or world citizenship, that your own individual life might be just a little bit better. And certainly that of everyone else in the world would be a little bit better because there would be political and legal responsibility for every single person. And right? common but, interest. And, and common, common interest, interest in the common place where we all live. Mm. I mean, it's the most natural way. If we want to organize ourselves according to a political border system, I mean, what's more logical than doing it in the one place that we all live? I mean, that's the lot. That's logical to me. Dividing up Earth into 195 chunks, that's not very logical. And having cracks in those in those um, areas of protection now, and also cracks in other legal regimes, which allow, the, for instance, the incredible inequality that we have in the world today. You know, the only reason we have such incredible inequality is because there is no unified system, for instance, of taxation and, and wealth um, tax. If we had that, if there were no tax havens, if there was no private banking, if there were no secret bank accounts, if there were no, no, no corporate tax shelters, you would have a fundamentally different system, which would simply not allow the emergence of a billionaire class. And global you know? occupational health and safety. And, um, you know, it's the, the, these are really worthwhile aspirations. And, and the UN has made some and has promulgated many publications and treaties, treaties uh, to achieve these things, hasn't it? You bet. I mean, countless. I mean, the, mm. you know, we don't need, as a friend of mine, you know, from Bougainville, um, you know, used to always say, we don't need any more profits. They're all the profits we've needed. And that's P-R-O-P-H, <laughs> not P-R-O-F. Right? <laughs> um, they've all come. And all the wisdom is there, you know. It's there for the taking if you want it. We need no more profits, right? What we need is more understanding, you know, and more, more attempts to apply the wisdom that already exists in all these treaties, that already exists in all these religious books, that already exists in the experience of so many people, you know, and, and having those things guide us, you know, I mean, I mean, what if truly, what if you needed to be a truly enlightened person, whatever, you, however you want to define that? in order to become a politician, instead of simply a rich, largely male um, class of society. I mean, I mean, just stand back for a moment, friends, and think of the cross-section of 99% men who are running countries that are less than democratic today, you know? Is that truly the best we can do as a species? Are these really the very best, most advanced, most wise people that sit at the head of governments in so many of these countries? I mean, can we not imagine a, a better future with better people in power? I mean, I certainly hope so. Well, I, I mean, how that power is wielded at the national level is quite, quite different from how that power would be wielded at the global level. And I mean, from, from my perspective, a global power 
a global sovereignty, uh, it, it would be there would be no conflict of interest because there would there could be no borders. I mean, it is it is decision making for Mother Earth. It's not decision making for a particular region or a particular population as declared by the outcome of millennia of wars and tribal infighting. Um, but but what are the next steps for this? Is it going to come... Is it going, We can't... Can we expect it to come from podcasts or is it going to come from you know actual actual sort of actual work being done and if it's if if it's going to come from work then you know how can we identify what jobs need to be done to reflect mother earth's interests in our polity i think um i think we are now at the stage of human development where there are tens of millions if not hundreds of millions maybe even more people alive today who already see things very much the way that we're discussing it it's nothing new to them it's just, it's the way they they live their lives out even if they're living in countries where the dominant political discourse is completely different and where they're they feel like an absolute outsider but the vast majority are simply people who um you know, at the very most basic level, see see humans as humans first. You know, and they don't they don't care what how old someone is or what color their skin is or anything else like that or what gender they are. They just they understand that ultimately at, at our core we are indeed all the same, notwithstanding where we are, where we were born, etc. And what really defines us is um, how we choose to live our lives and what our values are and how we interact with other people and whether we're respectful or kind or not. I mean, it's basically those basic attributes of life. That's what kind of guides, I think, so many people who are already at the level of, I would w very happily become a world citizen tomorrow. But, you know, the important point is that um, a lot of these ideas are not particularly new, you know. But what if we, what if we had a global system of, uh, of a world passport, you know, right now? And that was accepted at every border. Well, for one, it would it would completely end the state of statelessness in the world today, of which there are tens of millions of people who are stateless with no government to protect them. All those people would suddenly have a status. How can you say that's a bad thing? You know, that's a huge step forward. Or it could also be the um, the germination, the seed of of a global sovereignty, couldn't it? Because those who have no nation state uh, could then grow into those who want to transcend their nation state. They could. They tend to be very marginalized <laughs> people who have suffered immensely, you know, however. So I think that would probably not be favored by a large number of people. But nonetheless, their statelessness status would cease. And whether they would get the protection they need to ha with a world passport would depend on how other systems evolve to fill in that role that their 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 state. Yeah, but could be could there. a world passport be, um, if you like, uh, enrollment on the world register? Well, to you could vote. apply. Like even like let's let's say we had a system whereby 
starting on, you know, 1st of January, 2023, anyone in the world that wanted to apply for a world passport um, and 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 they, and and thereby be on a world electoral roll, right, right. Um, and you wouldn't have to renounce your current passport or passports or nationality, but you would gain um, the the legal status of of world citizen. It was totally voluntary. I mean, that's one way that this, this whole process could potentially go. I think the thing is, is that these are all huge, gigantic issues, really. Um, but very few people are talking about them in concrete terms. And that, you know, that's really the role that we want to play with this, with this podcast. You know, how do these grandiose ideas, uh, many of which have been around for a long time, but haven't really taken on the concrete form that they could have, how do we actually, you know, imagine that happening in the most painless, peaceful, evolutionary way? Um, because, you know, my, my view very much is that we cannot continue um, on this business-as-usual approach. Yeah, but surely we can have a blockchain approach to voting where anonymity is preserved, yet you only have one vote each. Uh, surely we can d devise uh, a platform which can produce an online passport for mm -hmm. for a plan at a planetary level easily and and which can then shoot to such holders um, as you say to start with uh, an opinion poll and that opinion poll can then be promulgated in two nation states or more generally uh, and that's a start isn't it isn't that just a practical first step to i mean there has been uh, the Gary Davis world passport thing from the 50s um, imagine if a person with his passion had the technology we've got today. Yeah, right. You know? Absolutely. Well, we have to also remember that there was that um, musician who tried to use his world passport while exiting South Africa, where uh -huh. he was living for a brief period. Um, and he was held and arrested and, I believe, charged for traveling on false documents, you know? So that shows you, and that's such an interesting case, because it shows you how seriously states do take this whole question of nationality, of visas, of passports, and, and the whole seriousness by which, to which they accord borders. You know, if they're going to arrest a musician who uses um, kind of on a whim, you know, his global passport while leaving a country, and that's in, you know, pretty reasonable constitution, you know, South Africa... Imagine what some other countries would do, right? So, you know, it's, it's a really serious matter um, that we're talking about. We can do it technologically without any problem. Well, one can, would think can so. Can we do it collectively in psychological terms? Do, does the mass well, of perhaps, humanity want this to occur, or do we want something, um, you know, do, do we want to just keep things as they are today? Well, perhaps the, you know, the nation-state passport is, you know, the desirable one to show at an airport. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice to think that the world passport would put you on an electoral roll, it would give you a, an important say in world politics? Because it isn't there at the moment, Scott. Right. Um, you know, the Guardian doesn't cut it. No, and, and writing a letter to the editor doesn't cut it, or giving a speech somewhere doesn't necessarily cut it. I mean, there are ways to... Or voting, voting at the nation-state level. 
Absolutely. I mean, that, uh, voting at the nation state level is no guarantee that we're going to have a better planet. That's for absolute, absolutely sure. So currently we split up uh, issues that get voted upon depending on how uh, locally relevant they are. Uh-huh. Uh, so you vote on certain issues at a local level, council level, vote on certain issues uh, at a state level, and vote on certain issues at a nation state level. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What are some of the issues that you think we need to vote on on an international level? Right, that's a great question. Um, also, you know, a lot of people th- are have asked similar versions of that question. Um, you know, it's we all agree that it's perfectly appropriate for you in your town to vote on whether or not you want a road widened, for instance, or a or a garbage tip to be put there. Right, that's not necessarily a matter for the national parliament, but it is a matter for your local council. No one disagrees with that. Same thing at the at the state level, and same thing same at the national level. So, um, there's nothing strange that different types of political jurisdictions have powers over certain matters, but not over others. Right? We accept that kind of universally, except in dictatorships. Right? But in democracies, we accept that. Um, and democracies are where it's at, by the way, not dictatorships. So, um, at the global level. You, for the system to work properly, you would need to basically have a list of the types of matters which were considered to be matters of international or global or world importance, you know, and it could not be, you know, voting on my garbage tip in, um, you know, Quezon City, Manila, right? But you could, so any matter concerning international peace and security. Or the high seas. You could imagine that. You could imagine the high seas. You could imagine certain types of resource extraction being relevant to that. You could think of um, certain human rights uh, violations and certain human rights crimes. Um, uh, certain rules on discrimination, for instance. Um, so but there's all sorts of issues. You know, it needs to be sorted out. But there's no difference <clears throat> between what we already do at the national regional, state, and local level. You know, we just need to bring it up one level and be reasonable and be logical about it. And uh, and try not to have too many sort of inter-jurisdictional dysfunctions. Right. And uh, and, and that list that you mentioned, has the, have we got a blueprint for that? Has, has such a list existed on the planet before? I mean, you could argue that, you know, the Security Council... Um, the Charter, the, UN, the UN, UN Charter? Well... Everything at the, at the, that's brought to the attention of the Security Council is meant to be a matter concerning international peace and security. Yep. Right? So they already, in principle, do it. But as we know, the dis, there is dysfunction um, because of the veto power associated with the Security Council. You know, if you didn't have veto power on the Security Council, um, it could do so much more than it has traditionally done. And, you know, if there's a resolution on Israel and the occupation of Palestine... The Americans will veto it. You know, if there's a resolution on Syria and trying to end human rights violations there, the Russians will veto it. If there will never be a discussion in the Security Council about Tibet because China will veto it. And the list goes on. So, um, well, are you suggesting, um, I don't think I am, but are you suggesting that um, a world polity would have jurisdiction over the creation of boundaries? I mean, this is just more internationalism. You know, if we're going to have true globalism, then, you know, that list, I don't believe such a list exists. I mean, surely at the top of the list would be climate change. 
that would be up there. Yeah. No doubt the next point would be uh, inequality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then the use of uh, dangerous pesticides, the international taxation, loopholes, you know, fixing some of these problems is, can only occur at the global level. Mm-hmm. Is that the, are they the sort of matters you'd see on, on the list? I would see anything that had international implications that could not in and of itself be solved at the national level yep. to be the highest candidates for that list. So not everything, <clears throat> but, but not but, nothing either. But up until now, we've had a treaty system that's meant to bargain these things. Aren't we now talking about some higher sovereignty, some higher jurisdiction that actually dictates these things, that finds its... Um, righteousness, if you like, in some sort of global democracy? Um, or are we talking, you know, just a, a reimagined UN? Oh, I think we have to go far beyond the current manner by which the UN is organized. But, you know, given the fact that we do have a world of nation states and 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 we recall the lessons of history, the UN is pretty good you know as far as things go today but it's not nearly far enough to achieve what we really ultimately need to achieve if we believe in the concept of world citizenship and ultimately a world parliament the general assembly of the united nations is not a world parliament it is a collection of nation states each voting um in their own national interests on certain matters of international concern. And that's good. That's a gigantic step forward over what was there before. No question about it. But how many of those, and this is, you know, having worked in the UN and at the UN for decades of my life, you know, one of the overarching things I constantly think about is how many of those people that I've hung out with inside the UN building and worked with in various UN field operations all around the world and so on and so forth, how many of those people are truly world citizens at their core? You know, how many of them truly have the oneness vision of, of all of humanity and who who really see us as one giant human family. And, you know, I have to admit that the number is far smaller than I had anticipated when I first went into the UN back in, you know, the 1980s, you know. So there's a lot there, There's and there's people doing incredible work, incredibly selflessly in very, very difficult circumstances, more difficult than any critic of the UN could ever imagine. You know, I want to see anti-UN people like John Bolton of the United States. You go work for UNHCR for one day in a refugee camp in Jordan, and we'll see how well you can handle that, you know? So all these blind critics of the UN who have never worked there, who don't know anything about the true nature of what it is to be an international civil servant working in war zones, working in refugee camps, working in disaster zones, working with the most vulnerable people in the world... You have no right to criticize anything until you yourself actually go there and try to do it. And I challenge all of you to do that. Mr. and Mrs. Anti-UN, go and see human suffering up close and personal. Be there and try to do something about it. And then see how critical you are of the UN a week or two later. And I, I have this very strong feeling your criticisms will wane dramatically. Well, look, if it's... Um, Scott... So where's it going to come from? I mean, Mother Nature's going to uh, bat last here, is she not? Um, <laughs> are, are we going to be scrabbling as nation states to some sort of 
let me in, let me in. I mean, are we going to be scrabbling toward a future where to be isolated from the world community is to is going to be the same as being isolated from the tribe? You know, um, Brexit does show us, doesn't it, the difficulties associated with uh, with those, you know, going against the the normal process of unification. But surely we need to be thinking about how we can give legitimacy to, you know, these, the way in which these truly global problems are answered. Because if we can't, then they're going to be answered for us, aren't they? Well, sadly, they will. And, you know, that's ultimately the big point. You know, the, the, we have one planet. There is a finite amount of physical, natural resources available here many of which we try to exploit to increase our own physical comfort, broadly defined. Um, <laughs> and those who have access to the most resources tend to be the most comfortable. And that is something that people everywhere um, aspire to. And who can blame them? Of course. Why shouldn't they? Why shouldn't everyone have access to the same amount of resources that people in the developed world and the rapidly developing world um, do have access to? How can we possibly deny um, air conditioning to the, you know, 3 billion people on planet Earth who are making less than $10 a day, you know, um, when most of them happen to live in areas where they benefit greatly by having air conditioning, you know, and that's just one of hundreds of examples. So if you look at it at the real macro level, there's a certain amount of resources available on planet Earth, which is finite and which is identifiable. There's a certain number of human beings on planet Earth that's trying to get access to those resources in whatever way they may manifest. Well, well isn't this so? How do we do, how do we manage that? Is well, really the question. And right now, do, yeah. And where do we draw the line? Right. Where are the lines drawn? Mm -hmm. And who's drawing them? Right. Because mm -hmm. now, I mean, we have over two thousand. What is it? Two thousand five hundred billionaires on planet Earth, and we have half of humanity barely scraping by. Um, you know, I think I think it's half of humanity has one percent of all net worth in the on the planet, the poorest half. You know, and you know, my last read of it somewhere was the poorest half <clears throat> have the same amount of dollar value wealth as the top four hundred people. Yeah, yeah, something in that range. Yeah, I mean, it fluctuates a bit, but it's basically that. And so, not being one of those four hundred, I'm not cool with that. Yeah, well, I don't think anyone's cool with that. That's the thing. Even a lot of those people in the 400 are not that cool with that, you know? Um, but not enough. And, you know, how can we have allowed an economic system to be put in place that allows that to happen? And I think this is a, a huge issue that a, a, a global parliament and global voting can actually start looking at. Well, we'd certainly love to hear from listeners as to how we get over this little speed bump in our evolution. Uh, post something down below and episode three will be with you soon.